0: Craig Sams has always been a mover and shaker in the world of whole foods, but also where food comes from, the soil. In the 60s, he founded Whole Earth Foods, introducing the first organic brown rice for the emerging natural foods market. His brother, Greg, invented the veggie burger, in the 90s, Craig and his wife, Jo, started Green and Blacks, which was the first organic chocolate and the first product ever to carry the fair trade mark. More recently, from 2000, he was the chairman of the Soil Association and director of Duchy Originals, supporting Prince Charles's efforts to bring organic food to the people. He also chaired Slow Food UK. He founded Carbon Gold to make biochar, a soil enricher to create healthy topsoil, thus capturing carbon and helping to reverse global warming. We will talk about this. This podcast is entitled Soil is Food is Medicine. We are going to explore to what extent our current health and climate issues from COVID to cancer could be a consequence ...of soil abuse. We're going to discuss everything from soil to food to health, including the vital importance of the vast fungal network encompassing the earth, why modern farming and food is killing the earth, and people the organic versus GM, genetically modified food debate, why viral pandemics could be an entirely expected consequence and the dangers of ignoring our own immune system's need for nutrients, the risk to our continuation as a species from xenoestrogens as sperm counts crash and the problems we are creating for ourselves by just relying on drugs and vaccines to fix These ailments, whatever happens, we're going to leave this podcast with a much bigger picture of the connectedness of things and the kind of direction our lifestyles must take, both to be healthy and to create a healthy planet. Craig, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you, Patrick.
0: I always learn so much um, from our exchanges. So let's start with the soil, since this is where all food comes from.
1: The soil is something that I see as mirrored within our gut, that soil is where life began. The original life on this planet arguably was fungal microorganisms that co-evolved with uh, cyanobacteria that could convert sunlight and carbon dioxide, at a time when the atmosphere was 95% carbon dioxide, could convert sunlight and carbon dioxide into carbohydrate, which then fed the fungi. The fungi have moved on from cyanobacteria, and they got accumulated uh, structures of these carbon dioxide converting microorganisms, which we would call plants. The fungi were still there working with those plants, taking the carbon, the carbon carbohydrates that these plants were making and converting them and using the energy of those carbohydrates to break down rock and mine soil, mine rock to create more minerals for the cyano for the plants basically and that evolved to a point where some of these fungi developed plants that could walk and fly uh, and they therefore bypass the plant process and just capture the nutrition that plants were making. And that's where moving life, birds and dinosaurs and human beings,
0: all came from. So first we got the fungi, and then the plants, and then the animals. And then and, the animals. And, and who's we, feeding whom? Who's
1: feeding whom is the question. Are we simply walking, thinking food-gathering organisms for fungal colonies, or are they merely passengers who happen to hitch a ride on these life forms that evolved independently? Well, if you look at the whole course of evolution, it's pretty obvious that everything came from those original fungi and that they created the infrastructure
0: in which other life forms could evolve. Yeah, I recently read uh, Merlin Sheldrake's excellent book, Entangled Life, and uh, it really opens your mind to the way there is an entire massive fungal network underlying absolutely everything. And that's in the soil. So um, Peter Wohlleben also
1: wrote in, uh, about the Wood Wide Web, Uh, that you have this network of fungi. Now, how do they connect? How can a tree in a forest, miles from a tree that gets infected, immediately start producing whatever the antidote is to that infection? It's The only way is to communicate via that underground internet that is instantaneous. How do people do it is slightly more complicated, and it's it's Rupert Sheldrake, Merlin's dad, who wrote a book called How Dogs Know When Their Master Is Coming Home, and he had bulletproof examples of how dogs would leap up and run to the window and start barking when their owner was within a mile or two. And it couldn't. It wasn't because of timing. It was some kind of connection and. What he was suggesting is that there is some kind of telepathic communication between our gut fungi that transcends, uh, it could be what we call telepathy, but it's not our brains that are doing the connection, it's the fungi somehow getting those vibrations
0: right, much as they do in in the forest floor, in the soil. Yes, because Merlin explains how trees are connected and they will exchange nutrients and carbon so that weaker younger trees can uh, you know get exchanges from other trees and how there's very often sort of lead uh, trees uh, older trees that have more connections to the rest of the forest so again we have this sort of network system uh, it's it's quite fascinating well there is a
1: nursery near Windsor um run by a guy called Ted Green uh who's has some veteran oak trees surrounding the nursery and they raise the oak saplings in that area and those saplings grow faster and more resilient and more healthy because the older trees are nurturing them with the nutrients they need
0: and probably whatever other guidance they might need. And how much of us is fungi? Bacteria, you know, these microorganisms. How much of us? Yes. If you count all the macroorganisms bacteria, fungi,
1: archaea, um, viruses as well. Viruses as well. I mm. mean, we know 8% of our DNA is viruses. Mm. These are viruses that uh, invaded us or found a home in us at some point over the last million years. Or longer than that, probably. Um, how much in total? The the quantity in terms of number of cells is far greater, like multiples of. You know, I'm not really sure, 10, 20 times, even more than that, than our actual body cells. So there's
0: a lot more of them in us than there are of us. I read there are 140,000 viral species uh, uh, living in the human gut. 140,000
1: is right. Mm-hmm. And that's that we know of. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them uh, are called bacteriophages. In other words, they keep, they, they're the, the hygienists of the gut. If something is in the gut that doesn't belong there, these viruses clean them up and get rid of them. So,
0: you know, our viruses can be our friends and we shouldn't lose sight of that. When I was brought up, it was all about sanitizing everything, killing all bugs, cleaning all surfaces. Yet now we know about the microbiome underlying everything. Um, How do we enrich our microbiome? We feed it.
1: (laughs) We feed it with the kind of food it likes. And, of course... Different parts of the microbiome like different parts of different kinds of food. So, the lactobacilli, they're they're quite happy with carbohydrate type food. The bifidobacteria in the large intestine uh, are happier with fiber or uh, stuff like inulin, carbohydrates that are complex and take a while to break down. Ultimately, they can pretty much make do with anything. And that's why you have people, Inuit people who are living mostly on seal blubber and whale and other uh, unusual foods. And you've got people in the tropics who are living largely on fruit and uh, nuts and berries. Once your gut adapts to anything, it optimizes whatever food you give it. It's when you start eating foods that are either too rich or aren't really food, or when you expose your gut to uh, toxic stuff like antibiotics is the clearest example, then your, that balance of your gut flora needs to be restored. And it can be, obviously.
0: Now, I know you're an avid uh, gardener. I've seen your greenhouse. I've seen your veggie patches, etc. So in a practical way, do you clean the earth off the foods you grow and eat? There's an old
1: saying, and I think most people don't really quite get it. Uh, yeah, but they often say their grandmother said, you eat a peck of dirt before you die. And indeed, my grandmother did say that. And she was a Nebraska farmer. Um, a peck is half a bushel. A bushel is a volume uh, measure that measures a, a what is in a usually about fifty-six pounds or twenty-four kilos of grain. So it's quite a volume. A peck is half of that, so it's about twelve kilos of grain, and so the philosophy there's really not to be germophobic, but to accept that dirt is part of your diet. There are in Haiti, uh, for example, places where they actually bake cakes out of dirt as a digestive aid. Uh, In Morocco, they mine Rasul, a form of very rich clay. They clean the clay to get bits of stone and grit out of it, but it's then good for the digestion. In my greenhouse, we have super rich soil that we've been cultivating for years. I'm not averse to taking some of that, putting it in a glass, giving it a good stir. I don't actually even eat the dirt. I just drink the water. But that's where the biology is. Because what's in a piece of soil? What is it? Half, half soil is decomposing organic matter and mineral matter. So it depends on the soil. This is sandy soil; most of it is sand. A clay soil; half of it is clay. The secret of enriching, regenerating soil is to get as much organic matter in there as possible to break down plant matter into. Uh, humic humates and fulvic acid in the kind of stuff that enriches the soil and makes it an even better
0: place for a plant to grow. And you've been very uh, big on the whole issue of topsoil and how to create and sort of re-nourish topsoil uh, as a sort of major issue uh, for carbon capture, but also for f- feeding us. So what's what's the stories sort of globally going on with the depletion of topsoil and how we can create more and your project with biochar?
1: Well, I was born on a farm in Nebraska. My great-grandfather plowed virgin prairie that had about 100 tons of carbon per acre. By the time I was born, uh, 44, 54, 60 years later, that carbon content had dropped from 100 to about 10 tons per acre. And that was great for our family because it provided abundant food as it did for all the other farmers in the American Midwest. But that was the Dust Bowl was the consequence of that. The structure of the soil collapsed because the mycorrhizae, the fungi in the soil, that produce a substance called glomalin, which is named that because it agglomerates soil particles, had died off. They hadn't been able to regenerate as fast as the farmers were taking their crops off the soil. The next step was chemical fertilizers, and that was the final death blow for the biology of the soil Uh, why the plant would ask itself, should I be giving the carbohydrates I'm making by photosynthesis in my leaves to those mycorrhizal people who were fungi, who were my masters and who I was obediently feeding nutrients to in exchange for nitrates, phosphates, and uh, potash, um, when the farmer is giving it to me for free. So a lot of the yield, the increase in yield of crops wasn't because the fertilizer was better than the natural fertility, but because the plant could use all of the carbohydrate it was making in its leaves to grow because it didn't have to pay the soil microbiome for its nutrients because the farmer was giving them to it and those nutrients came from chemical factories and the the result though was that an even further degradation of the soil because when the microbiome died of starvation of course it never dies because what microbes do what fungi do is they sporulate they create spores so they they lay eggs, if you like. They sit there for as long as it takes until conditions are right, right for them to return into action, which would only happen if a farmer decided to go organic.
0: So let's talk about that whole, we've got a sort of a a nice breakdown there, really the um, no longer paying fungal taxes, the breaking of the relationship between plants and fungi, that leading to the degeneration of the soil. Uh, The soil is a major uh, capturer of carbon, um, as um, are the seas. And I was reading only last week that uh, around Britain, we're down to only 14% of our Um, sea grasses left around uh, the coast. So we've got the whole carbon story here. So maybe you could address that and talk a little bit about the uh, biochar uh, experiments that you've been involved with. Well, at the moment, we
1: have a situation where trees in particular hoover up vast amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. A forest, depending on whether it's temperate or... Boreal or tropical, can take anything from three to seven or eight tons of carbon a year out of the atmosphere. We then take those trees after they've accumulated this carbon from the atmosphere, we pelletize them and we feed them into electricity generating plants like the Drax Power Station in Yorkshire where all that carbon dioxide that has been taken out of the atmosphere for 20 or 30 years goes right back into the atmosphere. But, oh, it's okay because it's renewable. All we have to do is plant more trees. And in 20 or 30 years, they will have taken that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. There is another way. Take that wood. Ideally, use it in place of steel and concrete in buildings and... This building that we're in right now was made out of oak in 1770. Those oak trees were taking carbon dioxide atmos- out of the atmosphere <clears throat> probably in 1066 when William the Conqueror came ashore just down the road here. Um, so that that waste of carbon, the, the foolish waste of carbon, it's... It's replacing fossil fuels, but the fossil fuels are there. They have a much lower carbon footprint than wood in terms of the amount of fossil fuel that you need to burn in order to generate a given amount of electricity. So they're far cleaner and more efficient. Also, wood smoke is even more polluting than coal smoke. So in every way, we're doing the wrong thing with wood. We should be using it in building and everything that's left after the sawmills have finished producing the boards or the glue glulam, which I can talk about, it's a new hard form of wood processing, the rest of that material should be turned back into carbon. And the way to do that is to turn it into the form of charcoal known as biochar. Biochar is, is carbon that it's charcoal, but it's about 80% elemental carbon. Carbon, when it's elemental, doesn't mix with anything. It's it's a, a funny thing because everything is carbon. You know, we're sitting here uh, composed of substantial amounts of carbon that have been round and round and round. So at some point, the carbon in you or me could have been a dragonfly, a dinosaur turd, a elephant, a magnolia tree, an olive tree, and the carbon just keeps on going and it keeps promiscuously uniting with uh, oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen in particular, but with just about every other element on the periodic table. When it's in its elemental form, as in charcoal, the only way you can get it to combine with anything is by setting fire to it. So if you take that carbon as biochar and put it in the soil, it stays there. All right, well, that's lovely because you're taking carbon that would have gone into the atmosphere and you're putting it in the ground where it's nice and safe. But there's more to it than that. Because biochar has, that, that carbon in biochar has what's called cation exchange capacity. So any nutrients in the soil, nitrates and phosphates and magnesium or whatever, all mineral elements have a positive or a negative charge. And biochar is full of positive and negative charges. So opposites attract, those minerals stick to the biochar And when it rains, they don't wash out of the soil. That's why biochar is particularly good in sandy soils. So that's one thing it does. It's porous because it retains the shell structure, the cell structure of the original wood. And so that porosity means it's like a, a rigid sponge, but water gets accumulated in it. So you soil doesn't dry out so quickly. So you haven't got that situation farmers have where they they're praying for rain because they can see the crops starting to wilt. There's that little extra reservoir of water. The other thing that biochar is is what we call a refugia. So in the soil, the microbes that are beneficial are the fungi, the bacteria the archaea, and the, to some extent, the viruses. The, It's not just as comfy as that, though, because also in the soil there are nematodes and mites and protozoa and amoebas, and they're a lot bigger than a bacterium, and they need to eat a lot of bacterium to keep going. A protozoa. Needs to eat 50,000 bacteria a day just to keep going as a protozoa. Nothing wrong with that. The protozoa eats those bacteria and then it excretes soluble minerals that are a nutrient for the plant. So it's okay to have. You know, we don't, these aren't the bad guys. You know, there's a balance of life just as in. A forest. There may be deer, but there are also wolves, and it keeps a balance of the different elements. The proto, the bacteria reproduce every twenty minutes. So I'll do the maths for you, Patrick. If a one bacterium reproduces every twenty minutes, it's exponential by seven and a half hours, that bacterium has produced 50,000 of itself in ideal conditions. So there's enough to feed a protozoa. But what happens when you have biochar in the soil is you get a, a buildup of colonization of the pieces of biochar that are impenetrable to an amoeba or a protozoa. You have to just think on a microscopic scale here. But a protozoa can't get into those little nooks and crannies. It's too big. So the bacteria and the fungi are multiplying like crazy in this secure environment. They're still getting eaten by protozoa and nematodes and mites, but there are more of them. The population balance is more in favor of them. They are commensal, i.e. they dine at the same table as the plant, and so that they therefore have more food to give to the plant, and the plant gives more to them. The mycorrhizae, and this is in uh, Merlin's book, <clears throat> are endo- or ectomycorrhizae, so they they go into the roots of the plant. They're not sitting on the outside, sucking the carbohydrates out of the plant. They're actually in the root and they've got their whole network feeding into the root. So the plant is saying, come aboard, boys. I know who you are. I want you inside here where we can do business. And so that's, that's the biology. And when you put biochar in the soil, that biological activity is more resilient and operates at a, at a higher level of activity. So really, it's uh, creating topsoil. It's creating topsoil by, it, people have done trials. There was one Swedish trial where they looked at adding biochar to soil and said, oh no, look, there's more carbon dioxide coming out that if we didn't have biochar in the soil, therefore biochar must be a bad thing. And what they didn't do, because when people reproduce the trials, what they did is they looked at how much carbon was accumulating in the soil, and the amount that was accumulating in the soil was uh, orders of magnitude higher than the uh, what seemed to be the excess amount that was being emitted. In other words... All of that biological activity in the soil was creating
0: organic matter now, b- breakdown. To feed a growing population, we need more topsoil. Without topsoil, you can't grow food. How much topsoil have we got left? The figure I'm trying to remember, I think it's
1: 300 tennis courts a minute, or is it 30? The, whichever, we are losing topsoil at an unsustainable rate. Um, Somebody might say, oh, well, we can do vertical farming. Yes, you can grow microgreens by vertical farming, but you can't grow soybeans and wheat and barley and oats and the kind of staple foods, rice, the stuff that we actually need to eat. So we have to stop losing topsoil. China, very interestingly, in 2001, we're losing so much topsoil in Heilongjiang province, which is the northeast part of China, very similar climate to the Ukraine and to the American Midwest, certain breadbaskets of the world where crops just grow like bilia. And the dust storms from Heilongjiang were... Cloud, making clouding visibility in Beijing. So the government said to the governor of Heilongjiang, do something about this. Well, he set out a program to make one and a half million hectares at the heart of Heilongjiang province organic. And by 10 years later, by 2011, the last 150,000 hectares went organic. And two things happened. One is the dust storms in Beijing stopped because the soil was rebuilding. It was increasing every year in organic matter and depth and fertility, of course. But also the Chinese organic producers weren't like the American ones who dominated the organic market up till then, who we uh, were in Illinois and Minnesota and places like that, an organic farm here, and or- organic farm there, not able to use irrigation water from the natural river courses because it was polluted with herbicides and other runoff from other farms, not able to use manure from neighboring farms because the animals were fed with hormones and other unacceptable ingredients. In China, these farmers could use, irrigate with the water, exchange manure, move back and forth with, exchange compost, because they were all organic. And so when you get that level of concentration of organic farming, you get a much higher level of productivity and you become cost competitive uh, compared not just to American organic farmers, but to any farmers.
0: Yeah, because the story we're told is to feed a growing population, we've got to have genetically modified food and kind of industrial scale agriculture. So you're saying that's not true, that actually organic farming could produce just as much if not more food? It takes about, on average, four or five years to get to that
1: level. The question is whether we want to operate industrialized farming systems where you have a constantly diminishing reserve of available land. That's, it's, it might be great to feed a growing population for the next 10 years, but then you run out of farmland. It's, it, that doesn't work. Through degradation of the soil. Through degradation, be, where it becomes... And it's possible to restore degraded soil. It happened in the Midwest uh, in, in, the after, in the 1930s. Uh, but they had to plant 10 billion trees from the Canadian border down to Texas to um, hold down the soil that was blowing away whilst they introduced new programs. I have cousins in Iowa who tapped into a state program to grow prairie grasses. So they now grow prairie grasses just like the ones the buffalo used to graze on. Uh, beautiful flowers, Echinacea and Black-Eyed Susan. And within two years of planting uh, 160 acres of prairie grasses, they had partridges, pheasants, deer. It became just almost like a magnet. It was rewilding on a Midwestern scale where prairie grasses
0: were historically the dominant species. So should we all be vegan, plant-based, or do we need animals uh, in order to create the manure uh, for compost, for recreating topsoil, healthy topsoil? I'm, I'm practically vegan, but I'm not a
1: militant vegan. Um, animal cruelty is a fact of life. We plant, we've just planted uh, 40 apple trees in uh, or, our orchard near here. There are no deer in our area, so we haven't had to put up deer fencing. Uh, People are experimenting with the miyakama method, where you plant trees really, really intensively, like almost a thicket of trees. You accept that some are gonna die, but at least the deer and the rabbits can't get into them. We don't really, it's gonna be a while before we allow lynxes and wolves to roam the British countryside. But if you don't, then deer are going to proliferate. And that's happening right now because of lockdown. Because most of the venison that is eaten in this country is eaten in restaurants. And the restaurants have all been shut. People just don't cook venison at home. They don't know where to begin. But it's a a novel food when you go out. Uh, So there is a role, I think, for meat and fish consumption uh, what we've done is we've just we've gone mad and the deforestation of the amazon is because of the human appetite for chicken You you need to grow soybeans in order to feed chickens in order to feed people who want wings and breasts and legs and what's the problem with genetically modified agriculture We don't know. We know that the GM crops that were introduced in the uh, late 1990s uh, have the plants, the weeds have built up resistance. Palmer amaranth in the, the United States, which was a minor weed problem, is now really problematic because it no longer can be killed by Roundup. It's evolved in the absence, in the presence of Roundup-ready crops to a, a really virulent form. The consumption of genetically modified soybeans, uh, the, the grocer, which is a trade magazine of the British food trade, uh, had pictures on its cover oh, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, of rats with huge tumors on their side where a researcher called Seralini had trialed GM soybeans as feed. And there were all these undesirable outcomes in rats. Well, you know, people, and that's one of the reasons why in Europe we don't eat genetically modified food, but we do eat animals that have been fed on genetically modified food. In the United States, uh, the attempt to get labeling of GMOs in food fell. There was a referendum, a plebiscite, uh, well, referendum in California. Uh, Monsanto spent $27 million, and it just failed to go through. Or once you have labeling,
0: contains GMOs, nobody buys it. Mm-hmm. People aren't stupid, mm-hmm. and organic uh, is not just about sort of non-GM and uh, you know soil-friendly practices. Also, it uh, restores minerals, and some of these minerals in the soil may not seemingly be necessary for the plant growth, but they're very important for us. The trace minerals. Yes.
1: Yeah, and sometimes, sometimes we've lost them. And the only way to restore them really is seaweed or volcanic rock dust. Mm-hmm. That's the quick and easy way of rebuilding those lost minerals because they're part of the soil structure that once you've killed that soil biology, the minerals go with it. Everything washes out. And it all washes out into the sea, ultimately, seaweeds are the ideal way to get a balanced
0: return of those minerals to the soil. I've been very interested in selenium uh, for a number of reasons. Um, SE is its uh, descriptor, rich in seafood, seaweed, you know, from... Oh, I see. Right? And sesame seeds are very good too. All seeds, anything with SE is rich in selenium, largely speaking. But also in Africa, uh, it's known that the rate of HIV infection is much, much lower in areas where the soil is rich, like Sierra Leone, for example, close to the sea, and depending on the history of the earth you know, under the sea, uh, compared to very landlocked areas. And similarly in the UK, we have the Wash uh, up in Suffolk, yeah. again, uh, you know, largely under the sea for you know, not so long ago. Very rich in selenium, and it has the highest concentration of centenarians. And then in China, has always been a fascinating country for selenium research because there's one area, the Keshan province, where selenium levels are so high you actually get a sort of heart defect related to selenium toxicity. Mm -hmm. And then the Hubei province, uh, which Wuhan is in, is one of the lowest selenium levels in the world. And one thing that has been very clear in animal research is that if you have an animal like a bat – and they're eating a selenium-deficient diet, you actually get rapid uh, mutation of viruses. So there's some quite interesting research on that, that uh, people uh, and animals that are low in selenium are a, a sort of a, a storehouse uh, of, uh, of mutating viruses. And, you know, we've now got, I think we're in our sort of 10th significant variation of, of the COVID virus <clears throat> Uh, do you think what we've been doing to the soil and to food has got anything to do with our uh, exposure now to to uh, or inability to deal with viral infections? Uh, I, I have no doubt it's
1: not just our inability to deal with viral infections, but our overall immune system vitality has been diminished. The I'm originally from Nebraska. The whole Midwest, the valley of what's now the Ohio, Mississippi, and Missouri Rivers, was in the last ice age under ice. And as the ice retreated, unlike in northern Europe or any other part of the world, there was no sea, that was frozen freshwater, and that retreated, and so there was no iodine in the soil. And the result was that that area became known around 1900 as the goiter belt because so many people developed goiters because there was no iodine in the soil. Uh, the Norwegians had less of it because they still had lutefisk or you know, fish that they would import, dried fish uh, and herrings that gave them enough iodine to sort of stay ahead of it all salt in America now is iodized for that reason it's it was one of the earliest mass medication things but it you know people weren't going to eat seaweed in the Midwest it was hard to get any sort of sea fish it would be fresh by the time it got there in the days of horses and carts and the but the, thyro- that thi- the thyroid disease was cured by that simple intervention. It's also interesting, but we're going off-piste here a bit, that the Bible Belt corresponds pretty much geographically to the Goiter Belt in America, that um, often often theorized, but that that same lack of energy, the need for that vitality that comes from the thyroxin in our thyroid glands is made up for by uh, the exciting religious, uh, the religious excitation of Pentecostal and those sorts of churches. But, you know, it, that is going off piece of the bed here.
0: The uh, we are. I mean, it's fascinating because in in uh, our life, actually, as I record it, it's it's my birthday. So you've got a few years on me. But in our lifetime, we've seen uh, the the lifetime risk of cancer go from somewhere between uh, you know one in ten to one in twenty down to below one in three. So cancer is clearly an immune system related disease. Sepsis, uh, which is really what we're seeing killing people uh, with COVID-19, there's more deaths globally from sepsis. So again, we're talking about infection. And uh, we also know in relation to COVID that the vast majority who have died are essentially the unfittest. According to the Office of National Statistics, six out of 10 were disabled. Most have an underlying condition. And according to an article in the British Medical Journal, from the very first uh, cases of, of mortality for COVID-19, 47% of the first wavering care homes. So, uh, it, you know, we've got quite a, a sort of immune epidemic, a viral epidemic. And it's often made me think whether COVID uh, or death from COVID is just another sort of metabolic disease like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, cancer, even dementia, that is the result of our species uh, losing resilience, and in this case, particularly uh, losing immune resilience. And how much of this has got to do with food? Uh, is the answer just pharmaceuticals, be it vaccines or drugs? What's your take?
1: I think there. Are, there. It's not just diet that that is causing this sort of increase in cancer and obesity and heart disease and infertility and declining sperm counts there are environmental elements what we call xenoestrogens that impact on our entire metabolism we always think of hormones as something to do with sex that you know estrogen is for ovulation and ovaries and testosterone is about testicles and penises and sperm counts. But that's just the tip of the hormonal iceberg. Everything in our body is hormonally operated. And when estrogenic compounds that are not even real estrogens but tap into estrogen receptors and often sit there, unwelcome guests on the receptors because, but we don't have the enzymes to get rid of them as easily as we do of natural estrogens. It's much harder for the body to get the right hormonal balance. Yes, sperm counts are crashing. Uh, Women are not just unable to conceive but endometriosis and ovarian cysts and all these other reproductive disorders are at an all time high. <clears throat> and men are, uh, there are, you know, we've seen it with in, in nature with alligators and other animals that the uh, penis size diminishes. The big measure in this is sometimes called the anogenital gap, the distance between the anus and the base of the genitals, that's shortening for people all over the world, because all over the world, we're eating, we drink water, you can eat an organic diet, and you avoid some of those chemicals in your food, but they're in the air, they're in the water, there isn't one source of spring water in Great Britain that hasn't got atrazine,
0: Um, and atrazine is an endocrine disruptor. which are the main xenestrogens?
1: Well, from agriculture, atrazine is number one, glyphosate, or Roundup, is number two. They're the ones that we have most commonly. Then you've got bisphenol, which is in plastic. It's a plasticizer, so you get it in plastic packaging, plastic water bottles. uh, Is it still used? Is it still used here in the UK? Bisphenol A has now been phased out, but what they've done is they've come in with other bisphenol compounds. So the problem with all of these compounds is they are innocent until proven guilty, which I think is the most admirable aspect of common law, and I totally respect it, but I don't for chemicals. For chemicals, they should be regarded as guilty until proven innocent. Otherwise, you take the DDT finally got nailed by Rachel Carson in the 1960s, but they just came, kept going with Dieldrin and aldrin, and we still have organic chlorine and organophosphate pesticides today. And it's the same with fungicides. Um, golfers, uh, golf greenkeepers on golf courses are struggling now because the fungicides they have been using to deal with the uh, Pythium dollar spot disease on putting greens, which have to be immaculate, Um, one after the other, they're being identified as carcinogens. But recently, last year, Bayer announced we've got a new fungicide that and it's it's all about just staying ahead of the science. Well, that's
0: not what you should do. You should follow the science yeah it 's fascinating this whole sort of attitude of of killing fungi killing bacteria killing uh viruses uh, extraordinarily uh, there are some fungi um, that have kind of trained or learnt how to consume glyphosates so we the amazing thing about the earth, the soil, and I loved the documentary um kiss the ground mm. uh, is that it's its it just sort of if you like, consumes uh, all our waste, it breaks things down and fungi are absolutely vital. And if plants are sprayed with fungicides, they can't actually develop in very important compounds like salvestrols, which we know are uh, uh, anti-cancer. So here we are trying to kill bacteria with antibiotics, trying to kill um, uh, fungi with fungicides and trying to kill um, viruses. Well, With vaccines as well as drugs do you think vaccines are going to create more resistance in the way that antibiotics have created more bacterial resistance
1: I think that there are vaccines that work and I wouldn't like to live in a world where smallpox was a serious threat because we just don't seem, in human evolution, to have gotten over that one. Somehow, though, we aren't getting bubonic plague. Um, I, we must have been. Exp- I must have been exposed to it at some point in my life. I've traveled in many different areas, and you know, it's just a bacterium. But I've never got it, and I think I've. Whoever, in somewhere in my ancestry, somebody evolved an immunity to bubonic plague. Um, tuberculosis, you could blame on environmental factors. Polio, to some extent, you can blame on environmental factors. I don't think that vaccination for flu or cold viruses is ever going it's, it's, it's a constant race to stay ahead of an ever evolving virus. The flu jab every year is maybe has 50% efficacy. It doesn't stop the people who get it from getting flu. The only thing that stops you from getting cold and flu type viruses is a robust immune system. And one of the problems we have as people is The first line of defense is what we call our cytotoxic T cells. They're the ones that when the virus lands in your nose or your throat, they just go and blow them away. You know, end of story, nothing to worry about. Those those cells are made in our youth and early adulthood, and then you really need them to see you out because your body stops, you know, they they're made in the gut, they're they're generated in the gut, and they become T cells in the uh, thymus gland. And if you don't get that buildup of immunity as a child, then you're going to have a deficit for the rest of your life. And I think this is the problem we have across the board: is that we. We have a duty to our children and our grandchildren to be as healthy as possible before we conceive them because things start to go wrong in the womb. And we've now been exposing our descendants to environmental chemicals, really almost since the, the earliest days of the chemical industry in Germany when the woad producers were faced with British cheap indigo and they developed all those artificial dyes and then chemistry really took off. And it just goes back to what I said earlier, chemicals should be guilty until proven innocent. But when we impose that on people who have no choice, you know, a baby in the womb can't Say uh, I'd rather eat organic, or I'd rather not have this kind of toxic drinking water, or whatever. We we can't. We've we've created a situation in which nobody really has a immaculate immune system. Maybe some people in Okinawa and uh, the Hadzu tribe people in Tanzania. But most of us have compromised in one way or another. I mean, I haven't had an antibiotic for 50, 60 years. Um, but people go to the doctor with a runny nose, and the doctor says, Here, have some antibiotics. It's, and it's a, it's a placebo in terms of what it's actually going to do about the person's cold. But what it does is it creates an underlying condition of compromised immunity and then when a serious disease comes along that person's in big trouble
0: so we have explored a vast network and interconnectedness of the soil and food and bacteria and fungi even viruses and and so on and uh, as we move to the end of this fascinating conversation what are your sort of rules for living what are your messages uh, to people who want to be healthy. Really,
1: my mind are probably, you know you can almost predict what I'm gonna say, but I eat as minimally as is realistically possible, but still getting adequate nutrition. So I eat whole grains, mostly vegetable food, uh, seaweed and uh, some supplementary foods and natto, stuff like that, to just make sure. You know, the, the, the people who scorn supplements say, oh, you're just peeing them out. Well, I'd rather have what I need and pee out the rest than be deficient. So I'll take some, you know, if I feel... There's a deficiency. I'll take something for it. I spend a lot of time in the sun, so I'm a, whether you call me a sun worshiper or a vitamin D worshiper, I get it on my skin and over as much of my skin as is possible in the context of the modesty that one, you know, also needs to show socially. Exercise. Um, I'm not a big workout fan, but every morning I do half an hour of Pilates. I actually have a Pilates reformer. So that helps to keep my joints and my spine straight and healthy. I do breathing exercises to uh, thoracic breathing, you might call it, just to kind of fill the upper part of the lungs and chest. And I walk a lot. And I forest bathe. So I love to go out. We have a little woodland near here, but it's connected to other woodlands. And wandering through a woodland, picking up the, it's the energy that's in the soil. Uh, Adolf just used to talk about you know, sleeping naked on the soil. I don't actually go that far, but you know, I like to be in touch with the earth. And trees exude substances during the spring, summer, and autumn that are also yeah, invigorating.
0: And I swim in the sea. When I visit you in Hastings, you do normally invite me out for a, a good swim in the sea. Talking of the sea, do you eat fish?
1: I occasionally have locally caught herring. There is a phenomenon here that... Um, that happens usually in late July or early August, where the herring minnows are, it's what's called a mackerel boil, because there are like millions, billions possibly, of little baby herrings about an inch and a half long. And the sea uh, explodes when a shoal of mackerels surround them and they're jumping out of the water to evade the mackerel or have come up from Cornwall in the warmer water and the herring haven't got big enough yet to go further north. So that's the moment when the mackerel feed on the herrings. Um, at that time, you
0: can go out and literally lift handfuls of small So so Uh, you you feed on the herrings too. So very much largely a plant-based diet with a little bit of fish. Do you take any supplements?
1: I take uh, CoQ10, ubiquinol. Um, I'm kind of aware that it's quinine-related, and I've just started to experiment with cinchona bark, is that correct pronunciation? The quinine bark that produces quinine. I hadn't quite realized that ubiquinol, that when you get that quin, that's that's what it is. I also take wormwood. Um, I make my own absinthe with uh, arak from Lebanon that has It's Artemisia, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the, the arach is really anise and... Uh, fennel, Mm -hmm. but then I get a tincture of wormwood and mix that together with it, and I have that maybe once or twice a week, uh, like the equivalent of a measure or two of alcohol. It's the only alcohol I drink. I don't smoke cigarettes, and and I don't drink alcohol, so that's my main alcohol, and it's medicinal. I, I think... There's a lot to be said for wormwood, for absinthe. And um, I, I'm not sure what it is, but I know that it's good for the gut. And um, what other supplements do I take? Sometimes I'll take vitamin C. Um, I don't need vitamin D. I get plenty of vitamin A and magnesium from my diet. Um, what about omega 3? Omega 3s? Mm-hmm. I get them from my diet, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, and um, we do use. I think there's. Uh, I have hawthorn, mm-hmm. and I. I mean, we have a woodland with a hedgerow that I've planted. In the hedgerow, there are five ginkgo biloba trees. So I harvest that during the summer, uh, pruning the ginkgo into a hedge, and then make tea out of it all winter. Um, so I have. Hawthorn tea, ginkgo tea, uh, lemon verbena tree from the bush in our garden. I always put, whenever I make a herbal tea, and I do it every day, that's my morning tea, I put one leaf of rue in it. So that's just, uh, it gets a bit unpleasant tasting if you have more than that. And I'm not sure, again, I just do it because it feels right. and um, And then I also have a coffee that is made with roasted dandelion and roasted burdock. So it's the same principle as the dandelion and burdock soft drink,
0: but I have it as a coffee. Well, thank you for a lifetime of leading the way on whole foods and uh, organic foods and very much walking the talk. And uh, you and your family have provided uh, all of us with some amazing foods Uh, very pleasurable foods as well over the years. So thank you, Craig, for um, an inspiring podcast and really showing us ways to live that are sustainable. Uh, Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Thank you,
1: Patrick. Always good to talk.